When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This week, the Supreme Court heard a case that could cripple public employee unions, the last strong unions in America. Jane McAlevey will talk about what is to be done. Also, it's time for another episode of the Children's Hour, stories from Amy Willens about Ivanka, Jared, and Don Jr., In today's episode, Ivanka goes to Korea, Don Jr. goes to India, and Jared gets in trouble. But first, the gun people versus those fabulous Parkland kids. They're challenging the gun industry and its defenders, and they might be changing America. For comment, we turn to George Zornick. He's the nation's Washington editor. We reached him today in our nation's capital. George, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, we want to take a step back and try to get some perspective on what's happening with gun politics in America since the Parkland shootings. Some background facts first. The gun industry itself has been changing and is not as strong as it once was. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, overall, if you're looking at the past several couple decades at least, guns have become just a less desirable um, consumer item. Um, few and fewer people are are actually buying guns, and that probably has a lot to do if you listen to um, the gun industry's own kind of earnings reports and, and annual calls. Um, you know, fewer people are hunting. Um, some of the cachet of being a gun owner has certainly receded amidst um, this highly visible violence that we see. Um, interestingly, some of the people who continue to buy guns are actually buying more and more of them. Um, they seem to be them in some cases, but overall sales in the gun industry have declined over the past couple of decades. Now that's been kind of temporarily papered over by uh, the presidency of Barack Obama because the NRA was able to effectively portray him as a gun grabber and, and to convince people that, especially after every mass shooting, Obama was about to 
you know, outlaw this or that gun, so you better go buy yours now. And that really did um, boost sales, but it, it was really a sugar rush that didn't last for the industry. And you've seen recently, uh, even within the past couple of weeks, one of the major gun manufacturers um, in the country, Remington Outdoor, actually announced a plan to file for bankruptcy. So all is not well within the industry. And then there's the changes in public opinion on an assault weapons ban. When Marco Rubio said at that CNN town hall that an assault weapons ban, quote, would literally ban every semi-automatic rifle that's sold in America, the crowd erupted in cheers, and Rubio later sent out a tweet that said, banning all semi-automatic weapons may have been popular with the audience at the CNN town hall, but it is a position well outside the mainstream, close quote. Is Marco Rubio right about that? Broadly speaking, no, he's wrong. I mean, uh, um, on February 20th, Quinnipiac did a poll, um, this is post-Parkland, on whether they asked people, do you, as voters, do you support a national ban on assault weapons? And it was 67% in favor, 29% opposed. It was strong with independents. It was particularly strong with women. Even GOP voters opposed it, but it was pretty narrow. It was it was 43 in favor, 43% in favor, 49% opposed. So broadly speaking, he's wrong. I mean, what, what Rubio was getting at there was not necessarily the type of assault weapons bans that Bill Clinton proposed in the 90s or that senators today like Dianne Feinstein are proposing for this Congress, but more the blanket ban of anything that could be remotely considered an assault rifle. You know, a lot of this stuff, even with polling on the bills that do exist, is is sort of, I guess I would say speculative, because we haven't seen, I think public opinion on this is actually pretty raw and pretty um, moldable. So it's certainly true, and Rubio would argue that if indeed the government did come in and, and try to ban every single weapon that remotely looked like an assault weapon, that, that there could be a negative reaction to that. On the flip side, we've never really seen, or at least not since the early 1990s, Democrats as a party make a comprehensive, compelling case for an assault weapons ban. You know, Bill Clinton obviously did that as part of the 94 crime bill. He, he believes that that cost him control of the House of Representatives. And since then, we haven't really seen Democrats do that. I remember even after Newtown, the big thing was background checks, but they dropped the assault weapons ban from that bill. So, you know, what would public opinion look like if if there really was a concentrated political push to to say these weapons are dangerous and should be banned? I, I think an open question. Then we need to talk about the electoral politics around guns. The New York Times ran a page one story a couple of days ago about the NRA's political power. They said the key for the NRA is not contributions to candidates. The NRA's political influence in Congress and in state legislatures comes from its electioneering machine, from the tens of millions it spends on campaign ads and their voter guides that give candidates letter grades for their views on guns and tell members who to vote for. How has that been working out recently, say, well, in Virginia, there's some interesting results. Yeah, in Virginia, so in in that election last November where voters were going to choose a new governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and and, uh, seats in the House of Delegates, in, in 13 districts that were competitive, the NRA backed candidate, and 12 of those candidates lost, while 
the 13th one, but it was on that crazy election that came down to a literal coin flip because the, the votes were exactly tied. Um, so that certainly wasn't good. Now, the NRA people will argue, okay, well, that was a wave election and Republicans across the board didn't do well. So that's not really a reflection of gun politics. But there's no doubt that I, it's at least, at least if, if you consider that spin, you know, gun, gun control was not a powerful enough issue to, to save these NRA-backed candidates. What was really interesting, I thought, about the 2016 election was that it was the first election, presidential election in a long, long time, where you had an openly pro-gun control candidate in Hillary Clinton who was being backed by millions of dollars um, from groups like Everytown and, and the Gabby Giffords outfit and others, versus Trump, who was, who was very clearly the NRA's favorite candidate. And the NRA spent even many millions more than the other side did on, on getting him elected. Now, let's be frank that um, the NRA came out pretty well in that election. I mean, Donald Trump, though he lost the popular vote, is in the White House. A lot of the Senate races that the NRA focused on, like in Ohio, um, they won in. So that wasn't that long ago. So I think, it, broadly speaking, it's good not to hold up one election and say, well, this proves that gun politics are going this way or the other way. But absolutely, just the fact that Democrats are even willing to run on it means that there ha there is a shift. And it's a shift that I think is ultimately bad for the gun industry and bad for the NRA. Now we need to talk about the Parkland kids who've been... So amazing. There was that recent interview where CNN's Wolf Blitzer asked Cameron Kasky what he would say to the conspiracy theorists who claim that he is a paid actor who is uh, faking his injuries in the school shooting. And, and Cameron Kasky said on CNN, if you had seen me in our school's production of Fiddler on the Roof, you would know that nobody would pay me to act for anything, close quote. And then there was this pushback from the right, which has been pretty interesting. Bill O'Reilly, for example, asked on Twitter, should the media be promoting opinions by teenagers who are in an emotional state and facing extreme peer pressure in some cases? On the other hand, we have Melania Trump, who has expressed support for the Florida teenagers pushing gun control at a luncheon for governor's spouses just a couple of days ago, our first lady said, quote, I have been heartened to see children across this country using their voices to speak out and try to create change. They are our future and they deserve a voice. Close quote, Melania Trump. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. For one, um, you know, we've seen so many mass shootings over the past uh, 10, 15 years at, at an increasing rate. And it's really when children are the victims that it really seems to serve as an inflection point for politics. I mean, even after the Virginia Tech shooting, George W. Bush did sign some modest gun control, but, but gun control, that would be basically inconceivable now. Certainly Newtown was a huge inflection point. It got the Democrats talking about gun control. And a lot of these groups that are out here now, like the Bloomberg group, um, Every Town and Moms Demand Action and Gabby Giffords groups, literally, they did not exist before Newtown. They, they were formed in direct response to that massacre. And so Parkland is another instance where the fact that this problem has gotten so out of control that children have become the victims 
has again kind of shaken up politics. And it, it wasn't that long ago, it was only a few months ago that there was a shooting in Las Vegas that killed and wounded many, many more people than Parkland. But it didn't, it didn't quite shake up the political system like this has. That's not only because the victims are young, but um, in particular, the, the Parkland students are just, they get new media and they have an argumentative style that I think most of the adults, and I include myself, are not <laughs> quite as good at. And so when you <laughs> see them out there on social media racking up literally a million followers and, and arguing so persuasively, it's, it's not surprising to me then that people like Bill O'Reilly are, are so kind of panicked by their presence on the scene and are kind of changing the topic any way they can, even if it's up to and including accusing these kids of, of being actors. Well, a lot of the talk has been about an assault weapons ban, but that's only one of the things that the Parkland kids have talked about. There's been some talk about divestment, and there have been several big corporations have split from the NRA. Tell us about where these new tactics are going. Yeah, I, I think this is really interesting as a kind of also end to the political angle. You know, gun control groups are very focused on getting pro-gun control candidates elected to office and then watching, you know, the fruit of that labor turn into better laws. But, you know, realistically, that's a long-term project. I mean, as long as Donald Trump is in the White House after getting $30 million in NRA money, he will not sign any gun control, major gun control legislation, you know, full stop period, no matter what he's saying in these random press conferences over the past week or two. So another way to go at the gun industry is to to attack sort of their sources of funding and, and their monetary model, which, as we discussed, is, is kind of faltering. So the, the stuff we've seen over the past couple of weeks, I would put in the two categories. The first is important but symbolic shaming campaigns where where major airlines or hotel change or, or, or car rental companies who offer discounts to NRA members are being shamed out of those partnerships. And it's, it's mainly happening on social media. And we've seen, you know, Delta and several rental car companies kind of pull those things. Now, ultimately, does that, does that threaten the NRA's business model? Does the fact that it can't get a discount on rental cars going to slow down what it does in Washington? Absolutely not. But it is an important sort of symbolic statement that the gun industry is, is, poisonous and it's toxic and you if you're an upstanding corporate citizen you should be embarrassed to be associated with it uh, the corporations that are doing this are delta and united airlines pretty much uh, most of the rental companies avis hertz alamo enterprise and national also metlife insurance and chubb insurance have all ended their partnerships with the nra as part of this shaming campaign some of those, particularly in the case of the insurance companies, you start to get the stuff that, that could actually falter the way the NRA works, and not just the NRA, but the gun industry, who, who is actually the real bad actor here and who, who possesses most of the money. I mean, the NRA is funded with the gun industry money. So the other avenue for, for divestment that people are pursuing is you know, getting large endowment funds and large investment funds to pull their money out of anything, any index that holds gun company stocks. So this has already happened actually in the wake of, of Newtown that the California teachers pension system pulled their money out of anything that would go towards gun industry stocks. Um, New York City has taken similar measures. There's efforts on college campuses to, where students are asking 
the endowment office, you know, are, are, are you investing in these gun companies? And if so, we'd like you to stop. This is actually happening with fossil fuel industry as well. So really, really going after the, the heart of the gun industry money is going at the source of the problem and will then extend to the NRA because, again, the NRA is funded by the gun industry. George Zornick, he's the Washington editor of The Nation. Read him at thenation.com. George, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about labor's last stand. The Supreme Court on Monday heard arguments in a case that could cripple public employee unions. For that, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's an organizer, author, and contributor to The Nation. Her first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, was named the most valuable book of the year by The Nation. Her second book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, was released in 2016, and now she's working on her third. It's called Striking Back, and it's about organizing power and strategy. It's forthcoming from Verso. She's a regular commentator on radio and TV, and she continues to work as an organizer on union campaigns. She leads contract negotiations. She trains and develops organizers. Jane McAlevey, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's terrific to be here. Well, the case the Supreme Court heard Monday is called Janus versus AFSCME, maybe the biggest threat to the labor movement we've seen, I don't know, maybe in our lifetimes. It targets public sector unions, could make it much harder for working people everywhere to organize for better wages and benefits and working conditions. Tell us about the case. The case itself, um, Janus is someone named Mark Janus. He is, uh, you know, a worker in the state of Illinois, um, who decided to take up this lawsuit, but by the way, with, you know, millions of dollars of backing from something called the National Right to Work Legal Foundation. Um, so Mark Janis is, a, is a, an employee. He works in the state sector in the state of Illinois and is a, uh, you know, was not even a member. He was already something called an agency fee payer, which I'll explain in a minute, but he's a worker in the state of Illinois who decided uh, not necessarily on his own, if you look at the actual track record and even his interviews, to sue his union to be released from having to pay what's called an agency fee. Now, I want to get the legalisms out of the way because this case is so much bigger than the details. In fact, I'm going to argue... I'm going to argue that the case is a fundamental attack on American democracy, for real. Um, But the legalisms of it are this. Essentially, and, and I wrote about this in The Nation, right, in an article in 2011, um, where I said, look, the, the, the hyper-extreme, the extreme right wing that now is in control, frankly, of our, you know, largely in control of our federal government as well as many state governments, a very extremist faction of the, you know, what were much more extreme than we're used to in my lifetime, right, the forces that put Trump into office, including the National Rifle Association, uh, the Koch brothers, the Mercers, a very well-funded um, 1% billionaire class that's been bankrolling this case, the Janus case, and many like it, it's, it's a fundamental attack on not just workers' rights, but really American democracy. And, but here's what it is. Here's the actual definition of the case itself. So Janus works for the state of Illinois, um, and he decides he doesn't believe in trade unionism, he doesn't like his union, uh, he doesn't become a member, because it's very important to understand, most people in America don't understand this right now, even in states like Illinois, New York, California, etc., 
workers don't have to become members in what's called the public sector um, at all right now. They can choose to pay what's called an agency fee. What an agency fee is, which is not the same thing as being a member of a union and paying dues, an agency fee, which was created by something called the Abood decision, which we'll come back to in 1977, an agency fee essentially lets someone say, I object to the political work that this union is engaged in. I don't believe, I don't support, maybe I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a hardcore Republican or something, or I don't believe that my union should endorse any political candidate, Democrat or Republican. I don't want to have to contribute to the political arm of my union. So back in 1977, in a ruling called Abood versus the Detroit Board of Education, a Supreme Court ruling back in 1977, in the Abood case, which, is, which we thought was settled law for the last 40-plus years, apparently not anymore. That's what's at issue really in the Janus case. In the Abood ruling, they said, okay, we hear you. Because of the system called exclusive, um, exclusive representation in America, where one union essentially represents workers in one workplace, one type of worker in the workplace, um, we'll give you an out. You won't have to pay dues. You can choose to become what's called an agency fee payer, which means we'll subtract, essentially, it usually winds up to being about a third. We'll subtract about a third off the top of what would be membership dues, because that's the amount of money that the court in 1977 decided was going towards politics in any union. So the worker won't have to pay this, essentially the political portion of their dues. It's not even called membership. It's simply called an agency fee. And the idea is that as a worker in a state agency where there's a union, you, that worker is benefiting from positive aspects of collective bargaining and of having a trade union, even if they disagree with the political agenda of the union. Yes. So Mark Janus was what's called an agency fee payer already. He was not compelled to be a member of the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees Union, AFSCME, um, which is the union that he was an agent. He is an agency fee payer to. He's going further. And by the way, again, he's going further with a ton, like millions of dollars of legal support from um, extremely conservative right-wing, I would argue anti-democratic, certainly anti-trade union forces in this country, and that's the Koch brothers, the Mercers, the, the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, the Bradley Foundation. These are massive moneyed interests putting millions into this case and cases just like it with the sole purpose, frankly, of destroying workers' rights and destroying trade unions. And that's what's at stake in the Janus case. This is likely to pass the Supreme Court five to four. That means California, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, and so on are going to become, because of the constitutional rights of Mark Janus, right-to-work states. What we've seen in states that switched to right-to-work laws, like Wisconsin, public sector union membership fell by something like half after the state's Republican leadership passed laws like this, why would so many workers leave their unions under these circumstances, and what can unions do to prevent that from happening now? Yeah, two things. There are two things, and I, and I definitely want to, and I want to talk about this, but I want to, there's one key thing that relate, that sort of joins the two ideas. So let me just say that, that Abood, again, what's at issue in the Janus ruling is overturning something called the Abood, A-B-O-O-D, uh, versus Detroit Board of Education. That's the 1977 Supreme Court case that Janus seeks to upend. I just, I, I, 
this is so related to what unions need to do to be able to rebuild and survive and, frankly, thrive, um, even if there's a 5-4 ruling. And what it is is this. The Supreme Court is absolutely affected by the social conditions that are taking place around it. There is no question that though we might think of those nine justices as free of political influence and societal influence, you know, every, every indication, every real historical account of the Supreme Court, we understand that our courts are influenced by broader social conditions. Part of why the Supreme Court in 1977 made the decision that it made, that it essentially said, the state has a compelling interest to have labor peace. That's what a boot was. That's where the agency fee, the fair share fee, that's where this comes from in the 1977 ruling. And what unions were doing leading up to the 1977 case that, that was a huge victory for trade unions and working class people in 1977 in the Abood ruling, the reason why working class folks won in 1977 in the Supreme Court is because the social conditions around the court were very different. Because trade unions, which were filled with people of color, public sector trade unions are <laughs> government jobs are still the best source of good-paying, fair, decent jobs for African Americans and people of color in this country. It's always been true, and it's still true. So in the 2011 article, by the way, I point out that this is also an attack on directly on African Americans and people of color, which we know there's a multifaceted attack on people of color as well in this country right now. So these are all stitched together. They're not separate. Like, what I'm trying to do is get people not to see this as a union case, but in terms of what unions need to do um, to, to rebuild faith and to hold membership, despite the fact that members will have the right to drop the union, um, we assume that's going to happen in a 5-4 to four ruling, in the Janus ruling, unions have to go back to, to fundamentally understanding that the purpose of the union is to enable and teach working-class people in this country how to effectively fight to defend themselves, their families, and make a high quality of life. That's really what the root of trade unionism is. And, what's, and so in the 1960s and 70s, you know, the public sector trade unions came into being on the back of the power of, frankly, the civil rights movement. It's the civil rights movement that essentially gives us public sector trade unionism starting in the 1950s and 1960s. There's a direct historical line between the growth of the civil rights movement and then the state-by-state -state passage of uh, state-level collective bargaining laws that enabled public sector unionism. So the civil rights movement exploded into public sector unionism. The women's rights movement that was built on the heels of the civil rights movement in the early 1970s, late 1960s, explodes into public sector unionism. In the 1960s and 70s, there are strikes, there are rank-and-file strikes going on in the public sector all over the United States. So the, the state had what they called a compelling interest in the Abood ruling to create labor peace. Well, part of the problem for the last 40 years in this country is that unions are no longer using the strike weapon. So they don't see a compelling interest right now to keep labor peace. In fact, unions have from the inside out sort of become less militant, become less rank-and-file driven, and as a result of that, that's why we have the Janus debate we're having right now, and that's why the Supreme Court could have the the sort of social capital to overturn a 40-year settled law called Abood. It's because unions, part of the problem here is that unions ourselves, and I put myself in that, of course I'm a member, and I've also been a trade union leader, um, we have to allow and enable the rank and file to get back into a high militancy moment like we're seeing in West Virginia right now with the teachers' strike. It, it was those kind of conditions that led to the Abood decision in 1977 and a big win 
for the working class in the 1977 Supreme Court case, whereas today we're facing a major loss because we have let trade unions become something like a Geico car insurance plan. We ourselves in the public sector unions have become guilty of allowing something called business unionism, of allowing the union to function more like an insurance agency for workers when they get in trouble than uh, frankly understanding that the role of a trade union is to enable and coach and teach workers themselves how to fight for greater dignity on the job and greater dignity in our society. So these social conditions matter a lot. When I, so I worked in, I had the pleasure of leading a union in a right-to-work state, which is, again, part of the article I first wrote about in The Nation, and it's certainly the subject of both of my books, is about how do we live in a right-to-work state? How do we build strong unions in a right-to-work state? I can only say... Um, because I had the benefit of doing it, that we can absolutely maintain high membership in a right-to-work context. So we did it in Nevada. The Unite Here, um, which is the casino workers in Nevada, did it in Nevada. The Carpenters Union did it in Nevada. There were three unions, and I was, and I was helping to lead a big SEIU union in Nevada at that time. And three unions built an incredibly robust high-participation, high-membership union in a right-to-work environment, which is sort of what they're trying to do with the Janus decision. Um, so it's totally possible. It means you have to trust the rank-and-file. It means you have to open up negotiations. You have to allow the rank-and-file into negotiations. It means the agency of the union has to be found in the rank-and-file membership. When the leadership engages the ordinary rank-and-file in the life, in the very life of the union, in contract talks, in politics, in how we think about administering what's called the union contract day-to-day in the workplace. When union leaders enable and encourage rank-and-file participation, they will, in fact, be able to hold high membership in a right-to-work environment. What scares me more, John, to be perfectly candid in this environment, is that there is this is really important. There is, there is an argument in a couple of the briefs in the Janus case that have gotten no attention. And in these briefs, you can see that a potential compromise would be something like this. We allow unions to continue to collect agency fees, but we constrain and literally narrow the definition of what a union is and what is allowed and permissible in collective bargaining. That's the potential other outcome of this case. And frankly, as a chief negotiator, as an organizer, as someone who has worked with hundreds of thousands of workers to win terrific contracts in their lifetime, often by involving either a threat of a real strike or holding a real strike, I'm much more concerned about the potential constraining effect on collective bargaining than I am about losing agency fee payer status. So there are very, very big threats coming in this one Supreme Court case. People are too focused on the question of fair share or agency fee and are, and are missing the much, much deeper threats that are all around the briefs in the Janus case, which is fundamentally an attack on workers' right to collective bargaining in the public sector and in the private sector. Jane McAlevey, she wrote about labor's last stand for thenation.com. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Now it's time for another episode of the Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Those kids get in so much trouble. 
Amy Willens, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her writing about Haiti, most recently in the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, the big news about Ivanka the past week was about her trip to Korea for the closing of the Olympics. This was America's answer to to what? It's the answer to North Korea sending its very lovely younger sister of the premier to the games, too. And tell us a little about her. Well, her name is Kim Yo-jong. She's the younger sister of Kim Jong-un, and she runs what's called the Propaganda and Agitation Department of the ruling party in North Korea. She's somewhat different from Ivanka Trump. And she's called by some in the media the North Korean Ivanka. America's response was to send the real Ivanka. This was sort of to replace Mike Pence, who'd gone there for the opening ceremonies. Ivanka went for the closing ceremonies. Remind us what happened with Mike Pence. He had a formal meeting scheduled with North Korean officials, but uh, gave the cold shoulder to Kim Yo-jong, the little sister, the North Korean Ivanka, and also didn't applaud the North Korean athletes. And then his meeting was canceled. Did Ivanka do any better than Mike Pence in Korea? You could say so. She brought with her a, a Korea expert named Allison Hooker, and she applauded the North Korean athletes visibly on camera. And then it is assumed that this expert did have a meeting with the former head of military intelligence for North Korea. There was an opening made, and, and subsequently... Um, the North Koreans said that they would enter into talks. It's unclear what the talks would be about, but it's it's an opening, which is different. So that you certainly would have to say that her mission, Ivanka's mission, the people she was with, did better than Pence. And Ivanka certainly did better than, at least from our point of view, than her father, who had said that uh, <laughs> North Korean aggression would be met with fire and fury, the likes of which the world has never seen before. Did Ivanka even mention fire and fury? She didn't mention fire and fury, and she didn't say that she has a lot of access to the room where there's a desk with a button on it that's the biggest <laughs> nuclear button in the world, like her dad. That is the Ivanka story, and if indeed we have a relaxation of tensions with North Korea, even though it's a horrible country, we will thank Ivanka for getting this started. Next, we need to talk about Jared. Jared seems to be in danger of losing his security clearance. Why is that? First of all, you could say, why does Jared Kushner have security clearance in the first place? He shouldn't have security clearance in any case. But then with his background, with the Russia meeting, with his Chinese meetings during the transition, he sort of lost any standing to my mind. But my mind is not the mind that decides about Jared's security clearance. So what seems to be happening now is that uh, because of how poorly he filed his uh, security clearance request or his papers for security clearance. First, not it, not even saying he had had any contact with foreign officials, then putting down like 20 meetings he had had when actually it's much more than that. He treated it in what seemed to be a fl frivolous way. And that has sort of put a stop to his 
real security clearance. So now he only has interim. And then General Kelly has gotten fed up with the whole situation, I think, with the Kushners, et cetera, in the White House. And he finally put into place a protocol that said, if you're, you've been on interim security clearance since last June, we no longer are going to give you security clearance, which means that Jared would effectively lose his uh, ability to see top secret documents. And according to Vanity Fair's blog, The Hive, Jared is none too pleased about this possible um, cessation of his access and has been, he and Ivanka have been working hard behind the scenes to push Kelly out over this issue. Just to remind people, General Kelly is the chief of staff. He runs the Oval Office operation, and he seems to be saying, it's me or Jared. This seems big. Because the fight is over something very important. This is a person, Jared Kushner, who has had a lot of problems in the foreign sphere because he does business with foreigners. And it's unclear whether he knows what are the limitations on what he can say, what he can reveal, um, whether or not he is actually consciously trading on secrets or whether he might make a mistake and trade on secrets. Anything could happen. He's not a career diplomat, and he's not in an administration that follows diplomatic protocols. So General Kelly has a point. And it's been very public. One of the things about the Trump administration is how leaky it is. I'm not sure that Jared Kushner would really care if secretly he were taken off the presidential daily brief, because who wants to read that anyway? Trump doesn't, you know. Um, But when you're known to have been taken off it under these circumstances, then you lose face. And in losing face, you lose power. And in losing power, you can't do the same kind of negotiations, whatever they are. Uh, that he's been doing. There was a fascinating piece about uh, Jared and China in The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago by Evan Osnos. Tell us about that. Well, it's a great piece, first of all, because Evan Osnos has tons of Chinese sources. And one of the the best quotes in the piece is how when they were talking to Jared, when the China... So my hackles go up every time I hear Henry Kissinger introduced... When you hear Henry Kissinger introduce so-and-so to so-and-so, you should worry about that connection. So Kissinger introduced Jared Kushner to um, Kui Tiankai, who is the ambassador of China to the United States. And during the transition, they met many times. And the quote that um, Osnos got is that the Chinese could not believe how compliant Kushner was and that Kushner would always come to a meeting without any State Department Uh, experts. He knew nothing about China. As someone said in the piece, no one came with him who could locate Beijing on a map. Uh, Sometimes he came by himself, which is strictly not allowed, because if you go by yourself, there's no one to document what happened. And if there's no one to document what happened, the Chinese can say whatever they want about you. While Ivanka was in Korea, her brother Don Jr. was in India. Why? He was in India to sell Trump condos. India is apparently, I didn't know this before, the largest uh, Trump real estate market abroad. When this trip was announced, Don Jr. was going to give a speech called Reshaping the Indo-Pacific, the New Era of Cooperation. That got canceled at the last minute and replaced by a fireside chat. Why was that? 
it was considered a conflict of interest for him to give that speech in India. He's not part of the administration. He has business interests there, and yet he's the president's son. It was unseemly, so they reduced it to a fireside chat. And uh, how did the Trump condo sale in India go? Well, before he even landed on uh, Indian soil, local real estate salespeople and realtors were putting up ads in the Indian newspapers for Trump condos. And the slogan was, Trump has arrived, have you? (laughs) So these million-dollar condos took off like crazy. And uh, as as Don Jr. said when asked about the when asked to confirm whether the sales had had gone way up, he said, "Let's put it this way: we had a pretty good couple of days." <laughs> yeah, I read that they sold apartments worth one hundred million dollars just in the Trump Towers that are near New Delhi, and there's three other developments right. he was he was pitching. So. Any uh, concluding thoughts about Don Jr.'s trip to India? Well, I'm just thinking about the whole Trump family entourage, you know, and um, we're telling all these stories about doing business under the broad wing of the presidency and using access to the presidency as a way to sell condominiums in India. And I'm just thinking, you know, every week we could do a segment like this on these uh, spawn of the president. And with any other president, it would be a giant scandal if one single behavior of one of these kids once was reported. Can you imagine Chelsea Clinton? Just for example, alt-right and old left. Can you imagine if she were selling condos during the Clinton administration? Okay, she would have been young. But, <laughs> you know, just Picture it. Picture the Nixon girls. No, this would not happen. Even the Bush girls didn't do that kind of thing. So I think we have to look at it and say this is grotesque and not just continue to be sort of bemused by the behavior. So to sum up the week, Ivanka was in Korea, Don Jr. was in India, and Jared is in trouble. That's the Children's Hour for this week. Amy, thanks so much for your report today. You're welcome. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks with sports broadcaster and former Georgetown basketball captain, Monica McNutt, about the recent big money scandals plaguing the NCAA, and also about sexual harassment inside the Dallas Mavericks organization, and a few words about the movie Black Panther. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. 
I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.